You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hydepark.church. Turn to Acts 21, if you don't mind. As I've told you before, I try to stay out of the technology realm because we want it to work uh, is the primary reason. So even when coming down to announcements, uh, I, want our, I want our tech people to even make the announcement so I don't mess that up either. So Bobby's got something very important to tell you this morning about our streaming. If you would, Bobby, please fill us in. For several reasons, uh, we will be uh, discontinuing our stream to Facebook directly. So Facebook Live will not happen on Facebook any longer, but every Sunday we will give you a link to our website or to directly to the video on Vimeo. So that will still be live. We'll still be streaming live there, but uh, because of several different reasons and regulations, all kinds of things, we're going to stop streaming directly to Facebook Live on Sunday mornings. Does that make sense? That's going to start in two weeks, so we've got two weeks to uh, kind of get everything settled, but uh, uh, three Sundays from today, uh, that will stop. And while we're talking about this, uh, you have no idea, or maybe you do, uh, of just how much work uh, has gone into um, the technology side of what we've been doing since March, since everything kind of went haywire in March with the COVID and the pandemic. Um, there's a whole bunch of people working behind the scenes, uh, Bobby and Pastor Bobby, Pastor Ryan leading that. We got our AV Tech guys here at Seth's table every week. And, and I, I, what, I, what I would appreciate you doing is showing your appreciation for them. Just give them a round of applause if you don't mind. Because <clears throat> I can tell you, if it were up to me, um, you'd be getting a VHS tape in the mail or something. It'd be, it'd be horrible. It'd be really bad, trust me. <laughs> Acts chapter 21, let's, uh, let's look at verse 12 and following. Um, I really appreciate Megan kind of setting the stage for me this morning. Matter of fact, she could have just went ahead and rolled on with the message as she wanted to. She was heading in exactly the right direction. What's amazing to me is, is you don't, this is something else that kind of happens behind the scenes. Um, I try to plan out in advance, at least a quarter uh, in advance sermons. And then I, I put a little descriptor, I title the sermons as best I can, give the text and where I'm going to be. And not only do you get that, but our worship team gets that. And so they're planning music out in advance. But sometimes they don't always know exactly where I'm heading. And, and sometimes... What I was thinking about doing six months ago, the Lord kind of hones me in a little different direction by the time we get down to the week of. But what she said a little while ago was exactly where we're heading today. And she and I didn't talk about that. That's just the Holy Spirit working. And I, I really appreciate the team and how much work they put into praying and seeking the Lord's guidance every week, not only in song selections, but what they're going to say and how they're going to lead us in worship. Acts 21, verse 12. When we heard this, we, notice that we, that's Luke, including himself in the narrative. Luke and the people that were with Paul urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. Father, we as your followers, we, we know 
the struggle full well each and every day. And it comes down to that last sentence where Luke and the friends that were around Paul, the disciples, that had come to faith in Christ and had grown in you, they, they come to the conclusion that all that really matters is the will of the Lord and that that will will be accomplished. Father, each and every day of our lives, we're either going to live for our own purposes, our own will, or for yours. And Father, that's why Paul would write that each day we must die to ourselves. Sometimes, Father, that's easier said than done. Father, the difference between us following our own will and what you've called us to do, Father, what needs to happen in those two differences is, Father, the realization that to do less than what you've asked us to do is sin. Delayed obedience is still disobedience. So, Father, what is needed in that gap between what you've asked us to do and what we choose to do, Father, you desire repentance. You desire reconciliation. You desire for us to recognize the fact that we're living for ourselves and building our own kingdom rather than building yours. Father, in Paul's life, we've seen over and over again his commitment to the gospel and his commitment to the mission. So, Father, our desire today is to not see Paul as strange or different or crazy or even reckless. Father, our, our goal today, through the guidance of the Holy Spirit and your word, is to see Paul as the benchmark of what it looks like to follow you. Father, we love you. We thank you for your goodness and your grace this past week. And, Father, if you tarry your coming and um, this world continues as it is, your grace will be sufficient tomorrow, Tuesday, Wednesday, whatever time you give, whatever days you give us left on this earth, whether by death or by rapture. Father, we trust you, we follow you by faith, and we know that your grace is sufficient. Thank you for all of your goodness and your grace. It's in Christ's name, amen. 1908, Henry Ford began to crank out Ford automobiles. Um, it, it was going to change the world. He knew it was going to change the world. He, he made the statement early on as he was uh, developing these cars and producing them. He, he said that every, he, his dream was to see a car in every driveway, in every home. Well, I'd say that goal has been accomplished. Um, one of the problems that he ran into was producing them fast enough. The, the, the way they were producing cars in 1908, 1909, 1910, those first models that came out, they would, they would take the chassis and they would pull it into a building, a manufacturing facility, and all the pieces of the car was laid out on the floor in a long progression. And they would put the, the chassis on a carriage and they would physically pull the carriage from station to station to station while people would assemble the axles and the wheels and the brakes and the fenders and the, the body onto the car. And, and it was taking up to 12 to 13 hours to produce one car. And Henry Ford began to realize that if, if he was ever going to accomplish his dream, he was going to have to do something to speed the process up. And not only that, at the pace they were going, it was way too costly. To, to produce a car, and it was too costly to, to pass that on to the consumer that he was going to have to get his, his cars in a cheaper range for people to be able to afford them, and he was going to have to produce far more than they were producing at that pace, 12 hours on one car. So Henry Ford began to visit other manufacturing. He, he went to a, 
a food manufacturer where they were processing animals. Uh, they would bring animals in on this end, and on that end would be canned meat, hamburger. And he was noticing how it was a continuous process. He would go to breweries, and he would see how they were producing alcohol, and it was a, it was a continuous process that raw materials went in on this end, and on that end it came out in bottles of alcohol, beer. So he began to wonder, how could we take the process of building a car and turn it into a continuous process? So in not, on December 1st, 1913, Ford's idea of an assembly line begins on that day. And what they determined was is that to build a car, a Model T, to build a Model T, there was 84 steps to putting that car together. 84 steps from the time it, by the time it began on this end and came, and they drove the car out on the other end. Now this is this is um, this was world changing at this moment to be able to build a car in that process. So he had 84 steps, and in those 84 steps, he had a person designated for every single step, maybe more than one. So, for example, one guy would put on the two front wheels, another guy would put on the two rear wheels. One guy would put on the left door, left fender. The other guy would put on the right door, right fender. And, that's, and basically, they built this carriage line, almost like a train tracks that would run through the middle of the building. So the car is moving constantly. And as it comes by your station, you put the left wheel on and the right wheel on. The guy on the other side puts the other side wheels on. And, and this took the Model T from being developed in 12 hours. He cut it down to two and a half hours. <laughs> From 12 hours to two and a half hours. And in just 10 years, 10 years from December 1st, 1913, they would have produced 10 million cars. Get that, 10 million cars in a very short period of time. Now, each worker that was trained had a responsibility, and that responsibility was whatever portion of the car that they were putting on. So let's say you're putting on the gas tank. And there's one location for the gas tank to go, and you've got so many bolts to put in, and you've got so many connections to make, and it's your job to take the gas tank off of the assembly line and put it onto the car as the car is moving by your station. And what is required in that single moment is for you to do what you've been asked to do. If you put the gas tank in backwards, that's not going to work. If you leave half the bolts out, that's probably not going to be good. If you don't connect the gas line up, that's going to be really bad for whoever gets that car. So your task all day long was to put the gas tank in the, the car in the right location, tighten up the right bolts, and make sure that you accomplish what you've been trained to do. In other words, every single aspect of that car came down to each individual of those 84 steps doing simple obedience to what they've been asked to do. Now, of course, you know, the great motivator there is a paycheck, right? Being able to keep your job. That, that the motivator there is, is I'm going to do a good job because I want to earn a living and I want to keep this job, so therefore you're going to do your due diligence. But really it comes down to in that moment, in that single moment, when you're picking up a gas tank and you're sitting in that car, that you're going to obey what your boss has asked you to do. It really comes down to that, doesn't it? Paul has his heart and his mind focused on returning to Jerusalem. Several reasons. I mentioned to you last week. He wants to be there for Pentecost. He wants to celebrate Pentecost in Jerusalem. Secondly, he's got a large amount of money that he's gathered from the Gentile churches. And he's going to deliver that to the Jerusalem church because they've been going through a terrible famine. The people are hurting. There's very little food. And, and Paul wants to 
to show unity between the Gentile churches and the Jerusalem church, and he also wants to alleviate their suffering. The third reason, and the primary reason, the main reason Paul is going to Jerusalem is because the Holy Spirit has told him that clearly, that this is what he's supposed to do. What's amazing about what Paul is doing here, it sounds a lot like what Jesus dealt with in Luke chapter 9, verse 52. You don't have to turn over there, but in that pivotal moment in Luke's gospel, Luke records, the same one who's recording the book of Acts, records there that Jesus set his eyes on Jerusalem. And there will be times where Jesus would interact with people, his, his own disciples, and his disciples would look at Jesus and go, this isn't a really good idea. <laughs> Jesus, this is, a, this is a bad idea. We know what's going to happen if you go back to Jerusalem. Jesus knew what was going to happen. But his heart was set on Jerusalem, just like Paul. By the time Paul returns to Jerusalem, He's completed three missionary journeys. Get this, 8,000 miles he's traveled across three missionary journeys. 8,000 miles. Those 8,000 miles of traveling took him 245 days on the road. Now, that's not just the time that he spent. That's not including the time he spent at Ephesus where he spent almost three years. We're talking about just the time that he spent traveling. It was 245 days. That could be by road. It could be by boat. It could be by walking, it could be on the back of a donkey, but 8,000 miles. Some people say that Paul planted only 14 churches, but I think it's more closer to 20 because what we see is not only the church that Paul established, but we see these, these house gatherings, these places where people were gathering that later turn into churches, and I think it's somewhere right around 20. So over 8,000 miles, three missionary journeys, 245 days on the road, Paul has established 20 churches, and those 20 churches have people who, are, who have matured as disciples, come to faith in Christ, matured as disciples, and they even have elders, leaders in these churches. Paul, through the work of the Holy Spirit in him, has done an incredible amount of work. Now, you could say that Paul was a great leader. You could say that Paul was a great theologian. You could say that Paul was a great teacher, and all of that would be true. You could say that Paul was a great planner. He certainly was. He, he had a plan, and he worked that plan all the way through. And when, when changes or when issues would come, he would simply shift and do what he needed to do. If he, if he couldn't get to where he wanted to go, he would simply do ministry where he was. But Paul had a plan. That plan was to make disciples of all nations. So whether you, you take the position that Paul was such a great teacher or such a great leader or such a great administrator, if you, if you begin to think that that is why Paul was able to travel 8,000 miles, establish 20 churches, you're missing a very key element to Paul's life, and that is the Holy Spirit. If it were not for the Holy Spirit, Paul would have died on that first missionary journey. He would have never seen a second or a third. He would have never seen 20 churches established. He certainly wouldn't have seen the spread of the gospel all the way from Antioch north of Caesarea, all the way to the Roman Empire. If Paul had his way, he would go to Rome and then right on to Spain. We're going to follow Paul back to Jerusalem, and everything's going to change when he gets to Jerusalem. Everything is going to change. He knows that. He knows something is up. The Holy Spirit has been telling him, you're going to go back to Jerusalem, and just like every other town that Paul has went into, He's been around out of town, he's been bound, he's been thrown in jail, he's been beaten up everywhere he goes. But there's something different about Jerusalem. You can feel it and sense it in the words that he's using. You can sense it in, in the way his friends are responding. 
From the time that Paul left Antioch on that first missionary journey, he's faced pain, trouble, disappointments, beatings, hatred. Yet nothing's deterred him. Now, that's not just because Paul's stubborn. I believe Paul was. I believe Paul was a stubborn man. And it's not just because Paul's a great leader. I, th I think there's more going on here. And certainly we have to look at the Holy Spirit and, and what he's been doing in Paul's life. But there's something else I want you to notice. That not only is the Holy Spirit working, but what was required is simple obedience. Simple obedience. I I've come to the place in my life where I realize now that that it comes down to every single day of my life, simple obedience. Now, you, we look at this and you may go, well, that's not really simple at all. Well, it really is. It comes down to, to trust. It comes down to, to whether I'm really going to believe what the Word says and believe that the Holy Spirit is able to, to care for me, to lead me, to guide me, to direct my life, that Jesus really is worth living for, that Jesus is all that he says that he is and far more than we could possibly imagine, that, that at the end of the day, I either trust him or I don't, and it shows up in the day in, day out, obedience or disobedience. It's not so much our words. It's not so much attending church. It's that simple obedience when you're all by yourself, when no one's looking. You see, it's not necessarily just more education, more sermons, more Sunday school, more committees. It really comes down to, in the moment, you obeying the Holy Spirit and what Christ has called you to do. It really comes down to that. In your marriage, in your home, the entertainment you're consuming, it, it, all, it all comes down to this. If we just kind of boil it all down, it comes down to simple obedience. I wish it were something else. I wish it was something else. I could tell you that, that if you want to find joy in your walk with Christ, if you want to find peace in your walk with Christ, if you want to come overcome addictions in your life, you want to overcome brokenness in your life, you want to be a person who's not bound to your past, it comes down to simple obedience. It really does. So let's look at chapter 21, verse 1. It says, and when he had parted from them, he's leaving the elders He's leaving Miletus, and he's had this conversation with the elders about, about them protecting the flock there in Ephesus. He's never going back to Ephesus. Paul knows that. Paul knows that he's never going to be able to go back to the churches of Galatia. He's never going to be able to go back to the churches of Macedonia. He's never going to be able to go back and see their faces, and he knows that. So he leaves, and he sets sail, and he comes straight course to Kos, and then the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera, and having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, he went aboard and set sail. When he had come into the side of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there was a ship to be unloaded its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. Luke is traveling with Paul. We get back into the text where, where Paul is saying we. So Luke is accompanying Paul on this journey back to Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost. And Paul stops over in Tyre for seven days. It's interesting to me why Paul would stay there for seven days because he's in such a hurry to get back to Jerusalem. And the only thing that I can figure is it took that long to unload the ship and load the ship back. So while he's there, as we've seen Paul do everywhere else, while he's there, he's going to invest in the kingdom. So he calls together the disciples, people who would put their faith in Jesus, people who were friends, who were living in that area. And look at this. And through the Spirit, notice that, and through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not 
to go to Jerusalem. Turn back to chapter 20. I want to show you something. Verse 22, I think it is. Turn back to chapter 20, verse 22. This is what Paul said to the, late, to the leaders from Ephesus when he, was on, when he was at Miletus. He says, And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit. That word constrained means in bonds. It means that, that the Holy Spirit has, has, has basically told him to go to Jerusalem, and Paul sees it as though he's, he's wrapped in chains. He is constrained by the Holy Spirit. He cannot do anything else but go to Jerusalem. The Spirit has told him that. And as we will see in the weeks ahead, that there's a reason why the Holy Spirit has told Paul to go back to Jerusalem. But I want you to understand that Paul has heard clearly. Paul is not confused. Paul is not misunderstood. He knew, he knows that he is supposed to go to Jerusalem and the Holy Spirit will not allow him to do anything else. If you remember back in that first missionary journey when he was in the Galatia area, actually second missionary journey, he's in that Galatia area. He wanted to go to Ephesus. He wanted to go south. He couldn't go. He wanted to go north to Bithynia. He couldn't go. The Holy Spirit prevented him from going. So where does he end up? He ends up in Troas. He gets a dream of a guy in Macedonia, and he goes over to Macedonia. Same situation. The Holy Spirit constrained him to do exactly what he'd been called to do. So what are we to make out of this verse 4? These are disciples of Jesus. These are people who've put their faith in Christ, and here's what they're saying to Paul. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. So do we have a problem here? Do we have the Holy Spirit telling Paul one thing and telling these disciples something else? Are we caught in some kind of paradox here where the, the Holy Spirit is causing division, causing confusion? Are we in a situation here where these people knew better than Paul and that Paul got it wrong? How do we make sense of this? Well, I struggled with it, quite honestly. Here's, here's what I can come up with. Paul was told two things specifically by the Holy Spirit. He says, you're going to go to Jerusalem, and you're going to find that you're going to be bound there. Just like any other city that Paul was, was led by the Holy Spirit to go into, you're going to be bound, you're going to face trouble, you're going to face all kinds of difficulties. These are two things that Paul knew. Paul knew there was going to be trouble in Jerusalem, and he knew the Holy Spirit. He told him to go. These folks, however, apparently they're only aware of the fact that there's going to be trouble. Apparently, they're only aware of the fact that, that there's going to be trouble in Jerusalem, not that, that Paul is so constrained by the Spirit that he has to go. In other words, these good friends of Paul say, Paul, we don't want you to go down there and suffer. There's no reason for you to go suffer if you don't have to. There's no reason for you to go down there. And I believe the Spirit is saying that there's going to be trouble. And notice this, I believe you ought to just stay here. But Paul is going to go to Jerusalem. I think these folks were well-meaning. I think they loved Paul. I think they enjoyed his companionship. I believe they wanted him to stay, maybe right on. But, but they only had half the story, and half the story is that there's going to be pain and suffering in Jerusalem. But I would imagine in this moment as these people are talking to Paul and saying, Paul, please don't go. Paul, don't do this. Don't go there. I believe the Spirit wouldn't want you to go suffer. Would the Spirit call you to go? do something that might cause suffering? What have we seen in Paul's life now through three missionary journeys? Exactly that, over and over and over again. Paul has both the command and the revelation of what's going to happen. I believe these friends mean well, 
But Paul has his eyes set on Jerusalem. Look at verse. Look at the next verses. It says, And when our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. They all with wives and children accompanied us until we were outside the city. I love this verse right here. It says, And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship and they returned home. I would imagine that in that moment on the beach, there's these families and these disciples and these kids and probably some teenagers and they all knelt down on, knelt down on the beach and they realized that nothing they say is going to deter Paul from going to Jerusalem and nothing should deter him. Nothing should deter you from what the Holy Spirit is asking you to do. Your friends mean well. Your family means well. They love you. They want the best for you. And certainly, there are going to be times where they step in and say, this, this just doesn't seem like a wise choice. This, this just doesn't seem like the best thing. But the fact is, if the Holy Spirit has said this, if the Holy Spirit has called you, then the best thing for you, now hear me clearly, the best thing for you is to do what the Holy Spirit has said to you. Not what your friends and peers say. Even if it means suffering. Paul kneels down with these people on the beach. I'm sure they shed some tears. They said farewell to each other. They knew they wouldn't get to see each other again. He boards the ship. I can't imagine what Paul felt during this, that the strain upon his heart and his life. We're going to see it in just a minute about good friends, good Christian friends who are telling them, don't, don't go. Paul says, I can't help but go. Look at verse 7. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemus, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them one, uh, stay with them for one day. And then on the next day, we, we made it all the way back to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist. We hadn't heard much from him. He, he was one of the seven that was chosen to serve all the way back in Acts 6, one of the one who was sharing the gospel, taking it to Samaria. Philip the Evangelist, he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied while we were staying for many days, a prophet by the name of Agabus, came down from Judea. Now this guy, he's got a little bit of history. If you go back to Acts chapter 11, verse 28, you find where Agabus said that there was going to be a famine in Jerusalem, predicted it. He's a prophet of God. We don't see a lot of prophets over in the New Testament. He's one of them. And he, he made a prediction there was going to be a famine in Jerusalem. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. And that's why Paulus had to collect this money from the Gentile churches to take back to support them. Well, he shows up. I want you to notice what he does. Agabus came down from Judea and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet in his hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Wow, that's an encouraging word there, Agabus. Thank you. And, and remember, he's got, a, he's got a history of being right. So there's no reason to doubt that, that he's not right now. And, and so he takes, he takes Paul's outer belt, which is actually an outer cloth that would be wrapped around the waist several times and then tied. He takes it, binds his own wrist, and binds his feet as a, as a living illustration to what Paul is going to face when he gets back to Jerusalem. How encouraging. And he did it in front of all of the friends and the family and the members of the church who were there. Notice what happens, verse 12. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. 
When they heard what Agabus has to say, the friends of, of Paul, the disciples, people that he's done life with, look at Paul and say, Paul, this is evidence here. This is, this is God trying to say to you, don't go. I would imagine somebody in the room had to say that. I would imagine somebody in the room had to say, well, this must be, this must be some kind of sign from God that you can't go. They urged him not to go. I can imagine that the conversation would have went something like this, Paul. If you know there's going to be pain there, if you know you're going to be arrested there, if you know that quite possibly your ministry is going to end, why in the world are you so, so intent on going to Jerusalem? Paul, we, we need you to continue to build up the churches. Paul, we need you to continue your missionary work. Paul, we need you to stay here in Caesarea with us and build us up. Paul, we need you to develop more elders. We need you to reach more people. We, we need you to stay here. Don't go to Jerusalem. And I guarantee you they were giving him bullet point list after bullet point list after bullet point list of why he should not go to Jerusalem. And I guarantee you they sounded reasonable. I guarantee you they sounded exactly like what should be done. I guarantee you that everyone in that house was agreeing that Paul should not go to Jerusalem. The only problem is, is God has told Paul to go to Jerusalem. See the problem? What do you do? <laughs> what do you do when well-meaning people, people you trust, people, people who are Christ followers, who have maturity, are telling you to do something other than what you know you're supposed to do. There have been times in my life, and there will be more, that those closest to me were telling me that what seemed to be right, what seemed to be the right course, was different than what I knew the Holy Spirit and God's Word to be saying to me. I have to say my wife has been right there in my corner, every step of the way. My wife, every single time we've had hard decisions to make, she, she's, she's far more mature than me, far more deeper in her faith than me. And, and I'll go to her and she'll say, well, here's, here's some things I see, here's some things to consider. And then she would always, 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 always say this, but whatever the Holy Spirit tells you to do, I'm in your corner. Can't tell you what that means to me. No matter what, no matter what, I'm in your corner. But I've had well-meaning friends, pastor friends, who, who were telling me that, that this possibly couldn't be what God has said for me to do, although I know I have this peace down in my soul, my heart and my life is constrained by the Holy Spirit, that this is the path, and that is the path I have to walk. I can't walk any other path. I'm ashamed to say there have been times where I took their word over his. How did that go? Not so well. Not so well at all. Delayed obedience is disobedience. Look at Paul's response. Then Paul answered. He says, what are you doing? I hear in the words of Paul, exasperation. He's tired. I wonder, I wonder how much Luke's been talking to him in the background. I mean, they've had plenty of time traveling on boats and by land. I, I wonder how often Luke has been joining in because we see those words, we, Luke is joining in. Luke is saying, Paul, you can't, you can't go. I wonder how much undocumented arguing or undocumented conversation has been going on in the background between Luke and Paul about, Paul, you can't go to Jerusalem. Paul is exasperated. He's ran down. He's tired. He knows what he's facing. And he says, what are you doing? 
weeping and breaking my heart. Now, I want, I want you to think about that question. Weeping and breaking my heart. I think Paul puts his hand on something very profound here. That, that Luke, his friends, the disciples that were around him, these are good people. These are people who are Christ's followers. These are people who are out in these areas getting the work done. But Paul says, why are you weeping, breaking my heart? Why would they be weeping? Because they're afraid that, that Paul's going to go there and lose his life. They're afraid that Paul's ministry is going to abruptly end. They're, they're afraid that when he goes to Jerusalem, they're going to beat him to death in the streets. And that almost nearly happens. We'll look at it in a few weeks. But here's where the tension is. The tension between what we want what we desire and what God says he wants. The reason they're weeping is they don't want to lose Paul. They don't want to lose this great missionary. They, they, don't want to, they, want to, they don't want to be in a place where they don't see him anymore. They are being driven by what they want and what they desire. And these things that they want and they, these things that they desire are good things, but they're not the best things because the best thing is for Paul to be obedient to what God has told him to do. Is that not the tension you live in every day? The things that we want? Versus what God says, this is what I want for you. The, the, the tension of, of knowing what Christ has said about our lives and that, that we surrendered our rights to our life. And that tension of wanting to take it back, take control back, do what feels best, do what is comfortable, do what is easy to take the path that is most traveled, which is the easiest path, right? And that tension between when Christ says, nope, that's not the path I want you to walk. That's not the decision I want you to make. That's not the way I want you to handle this situation. That's not the way I want you to handle this relationship. This is not the way, this is not what I called you, this profession is what I've called you to do. That's not what I've called you to do. You may be thinking at this point, how, how do we know? How do we know what, what the Holy Spirit is saying to us? You, you may be thinking, and maybe on, on some of your faces right now, you're looking at me going, well, yeah, that's great, but how do I know? How do I know what the Holy Spirit says? Well, you will never know unless you get into God's Word. You'll never know God's will for you unless you talk to Him about it. Did you know that the God of this universe was looking to have a conversation with you this morning? A conversation, not, not a, a one-way directed uh, speech that you make to God to check a box to say, I've prayed today. No, he's looking for some time with you where you can talk with him and he can talk with you. And then you can talk with him and he can talk with you. A conversation. God was ready. The creator of this universe was ready and waiting for you to do that this morning. That's the kind of love that he has for his children. You taking advantage of that? I can guarantee you this. You'll never know what he wants you to do. You'll never know what God wants you to do in this big decision you've got coming up. You'll never know what God wants you to do. And, 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 and when you don't listen to him and spend time with him, who, who are you going to listen to? Well, your friends, your family. And they may be well-meaning, and they may even give you good advice. But at the end of the day, it's simple obedience to your king that matters. Sometimes it lines up where your friends and family are in perfect agreement with the Holy Spirit, what he's telling you to do. That's awesome. Like just as equal and just as much, there's going to be times where you're going to have to walk it alone. 
So the tension here is, is what these people are wanting from Paul. Paul's like, I can't, I can't provide that. I've got to go to Jerusalem. Look at this. He says, for I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of Lord Jesus. Can you imagine in that room or, or out in front, out in this field, I don't know where they were, but can you imagine the hush that fell over the crowd at that moment? Now, now think about this. Paul, Paul is a guy who bears in his body the marks of the three missionary journeys he's been on. He's scarred up. He, he's probably hunched over. He's Remember, he's been beaten so many times. No doubt he had broke bones. No doubt he had broke ribs. And there was no hospital to go to. There was no, there was no place to go to to get those bones set. No doubt his arms, his shoulders, his back, he's probably hunched over. This is a man that bears in his body the pain and the suffering of the gospel. If you could have looked at him at this moment and you could have looked at him when he left Antioch on that first missionary journey, he would have looked like two individuals. He would have looked like two completely different human beings because at this moment, Paul bears in his body the work of the gospel. Scars, bruises, probably a crooked arm, a hunched shoulder, a hunched over back. And Paul says, for I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of Lord Jesus Christ. How did he get there? No, I'm not talking about physically there. I'm talking about how do you get to a place where you are willing to follow Jesus no matter if it costs you your life? I can, I can say that Paul is at this point, because it's been a day after day after day after day after day after day of simple obedience in the small things and the big things. How does a person get to this place? We often think of missionaries who, who pack up and, and they go overseas to some overseas mission field that is, that is incredibly different than anything they've ever experienced, and yet the Spirit constrains them. How did they get to that place of that kind of obedience? Simple obedience each and every day, day in, day out, and the small things and the words that we use and our reactions to other people on our job and everywhere in between, in our marriages, the way we're raising our kids, grandkids, all those moments, all those places of simple obedience build us towards a lifetime of obedience to Christ. And then if we're ever asked to go to the point of going where God would say go, then it might even cost us our life. You've got a whole history of obedience. How can you do anything different? Notice what Paul says. He says, for I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Verse 14, and since he would not be persuaded. He would not be persuaded. Jesus would not be persuaded. Jesus sets his eyes on Jerusalem and he would not be persuaded. He gets into the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's, he's praying in that place, right? He's, he's praying so fervently that his sweat is turning into droplets of blood. He was in such turmoil because this cup of God's wrath was going to be poured out upon him, and he knew, he knew the suffering that was going to await him in just a few hours after he would leave Gethsemane. While he's in that garden, Judas and soldiers would approach you remember what Jesus said there? He said, not my will, but yours be done. Look what happens here. He would not be persuaded, 
we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. Let the will of the Lord be done. What are we to make of this? What are we to make out of this, this instance where Paul is willing to go somewhere where his ministry may end, his life may end, and more pain and suffering awaits him? First thing I want you to see this morning, first thing, maybe you want to write this down just as we apply what we've seen here. First of all, when God speaks to you, no other voice can take precedence in your life. If, if God is speaking to you, you're in God's Word, and where does God speak? He speaks here. He speaks here. He's already spoken. God has said everything that He needs to say to us right here. 90, 90% of His will for your life and for mine is, is laid out right here. So if you're seeking God's will, then the only place you're going to find is here. What God has asked you to do, what he's, where He's sending you, the way your marriage should honor Him, raising kids, God's will for your life as a profession, it's, it's all right here. It doesn't matter if you're working as a nurse in the hospital. It doesn't matter if you're teaching school online right now. It doesn't matter if you are driving a truck. It doesn't matter if you're retired. Paul said in Colossians 3, let everything that we do be done unto the Lord as an act of worship back to Him. That is God's will for your life, that, that when you punch the clock and you work all day, that's, that's an act of worship back to Him. If God is speaking to you, and He is, then there's no other voice that really matters. There are people we need to listen to. There is there's wisdom from other people. There is, there is this connection of the body of Christ as we live out what he's called us to live out. But I'm going to tell you right now, and I want you to hear me very clearly. If the Holy Spirit is saying you are to do this, there's no other voice in your life that matters. If that Holy Spirit is convicting you and he's saying to you, it's time for you to lay down this false God and it's time for you to walk in complete surrender, then that's the only voice that matters. If you're lost today and you've never put your faith in Jesus and every time I get to this part in the sermon where I'm talking about the gospel and you're lost, there's, there's this quickness in your heart. There's this anxiety that creeps up in you and all of a sudden you begin to, to pour over these, these excuses that you offer every single week on why you can't put your faith in Jesus. And at this point, you get really anxious. The only voice in your head right now that matters is the one that's saying, come unto me. There's no other voice in your life that matters right now in this moment than that voice that is saying, come to me, I love you. Come to me, I want to I give you my grace, I want to give you new life, but you're going to have to repent, you're going to have to turn from that old life, that old God, that God is no God at all. If that's the voice you're hearing, you'd be wise not to ignore it. Second, simple obedience to Christ will look crazy to your peers. <laughs> following Jesus is going to look crazy to your friends and your family. That's okay. We're peculiar people anyway, right? When you, when you tell your family, when you tell your family that you are going to put your faith in Jesus and you're going to get baptized, there are some people going to look at you crazy. It starts right then. There will be some friends that look at you and go, oh, I see you got religion. Yeah, give it time. 
There'll be, there'll be naysayers. There'll be people who mock you. There'll be people who, who, are, who are enthralled with the idea. There'll even be people who come to you, okay, now that you're, now that you're a Jesus follower, you've got to do all these good works if you want to keep his grace. There'll be all kinds of bad theology, bad ideas, uh, discouragement. I'm telling you, when you put your faith in Jesus and you surrender him, they're going to think you're crazy. Doesn't get any better after that. <laughs> As a matter of fact, the things that you cut out of your life, those friends that you used to hang with, those, those people you used to party with you when you don't ever go around them anymore, they're going to think you're crazy. They're going to think you're nuts. They're going to think, they're going to think you're reckless. They're, they're, they're going to think that you're foolish. They're, they're going to think that you're stubborn. They're going to think that you're not considering the costs. God calls you into the mission field somewhere, whether it be your job or across the ocean somewhere. I guarantee you people will come out of the woodworks and they'll say, you're crazy. There'll be people who come out of the woodworks and say, you can't go over there. You can't go over there to that place. It's dangerous. You can't go over there because th there's no hospitals. There's no medicines. There's no, how can you take your family? How can you, listen, how can you pack your kids up and move to Uganda to share the gospel? Isn't there other people that can do that? You're putting your kids at risk. You're putting your marriage at risk. You're putting your career at risk. You're walking away from a career to follow Jesus. Do you hear, do you hear that? It doesn't have to be just the mission field. Then, then add to that. Add to that, you make the right choices for the right reasons. You follow the Holy Spirit in obedience, and things get worse, not better. Imagine then what your friends are going to say. See, we told you. We told you that, that you can't do this. It's going to make things worse. And what we told you is exactly what happened. Maybe that's what the Holy Spirit intended in the first place. Listen, folks who are lost and folks who are immature in their faith cannot begin to understand that kind of obedience to the Holy Spirit. But what matters is your simple obedience to what he's asked you to do. Not whether they understand, not even whether they agree. Day in, day out, simple obedience. Third, Paul is the rule, not the exception. Let me explain. Paul is the rule, not the exception. He is the benchmark. So when we look at Paul's life, you may think Paul is crazy. Paul's nuts. We saw one point where Paul was uh, ran out of Thessalonica, almost beaten to death. And what does he do? He gets right back up, dusts himself off, goes right back into the city he just got ran out of. Now to you and I, and I'll include myself in that, that seems nuts. That's what obedience looks like. You see, Paul's not the outlier He's not the one that's out here doing the crazy stuff, and we're all over here in some kind of other division of Christianity where we can just have it any way we want to. Paul is the benchmark. That's what a life looks like that is radically surrendered to Christ. That's what it looks like, whether you like it or not. Yeah, he's not the outlier. He's the benchmark. Paul's simple obedience is the example for us. That's exactly what it looks like to follow Jesus every day. The context is different. You know, we're not traveling by boats and donkeys, but trust me when I tell you, the call to take up a cross was never more modeled any better than in Paul's life. That is the benchmark. Fourth, mediocrity is the result of the road less taken and the path of least resistance. Mediocrity is the result of the road less taken Actually, road most taken, I got that backwards, and the path of least resistance. You're taking the wide road, the easy path. doesn't cost you anything. Your, your connection to Jesus 
is about Sunday morning and nothing else. Your walk with Jesus is about singing a few songs with our worship team, uh, going to a small group, maybe checking in on Zoom small group or something like that, maybe once a week. But your faith in Jesus doesn't go beyond the concrete of this building or the parking lot where your car's sitting right now. So your life with Christ is marked by mediocrity, not excellence. Yet when we see Paul's life, when we see Jesus' life, what do we see? We see excellence. We see beauty. We see absolute, complete sacrifice. And when we begin to contrast what Jesus did and what Paul did with our own lives, it brings to the top the mediocrity that is in my life, where I'm always just trying to take the easy path. The path of least resistance the path that offers no sacrifice, the path that requires nothing of you. Jesus is taking note of every bit of that, which leads me to my final point. My final point. Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. Turn over there, please. Philippians chapter 3. What, what is it? How is it that Paul remained motivated through all of this? Three missionary journeys, 8,000 miles, all the pain and the suffering. What was it that, that was constraining Paul? Not just the Holy Spirit that says, you're going here. What was it? Look at verse 12 in chapter 3 of Philippians. He says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. Paul's writing this letter to the church at Philippi from prison. He's awaiting a sentence to die. And he says, it's not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature who are mature, think this way. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we've attained. Paul had this driving passion that when he stood before Christ, when that day come, when he, when he crossed from this life into the next, and he had to face Jesus. He didn't want to face Jesus with mediocrity. He, he didn't want to walk to Jesus and say, well, you know, I tried a couple of things, but pretty much my life was really about me, not really about you. Jesus, I, I know you told me to do these things over and over again, but, you know, there was just too much cost there. There was just, there was just too much you were requiring of me, so I didn't do it. Even as you stand before Christ, who has the nail scars in his hands and in his forehead, who, who paid it all for you. We're going to offer mediocrity back to him. The easy path back to him. Paul's motivation was living for Jesus now because one day he would see him face to face. Paul could forget what was behind Follow the Spirit wherever it led, whether it faced pain or death or imprisonment, whatever it was, 
Because Paul was reaching beyond this life. He was reaching towards his king, knowing that one day he would bow at his feet. And what Paul wanted more than anything else on that day was to offer his life, the life poured out in excellence for the cause of the king. How do we get from where we are to there? Day in, day out, simple obedience. Father in heaven, we have fooled ourselves into thinking that that if we just have the outside right, if we just look the part, if we just say the words, that somehow that will equal a life well lived for you. Father, we have believed the lie that says that we can be outwardly one thing and inwardly something different. But Father, that's impossible. Father, may we live our lives as disciples the same way that Paul did, reaching for that day when we cross that line and we see our king face to face and we can say, we can say without any hesitation, my life wasn't about mediocrity. My life wasn't about just getting by. My life wasn't about my comfort. My life was not about getting more stuff. My life was not about anything other than day in, day out, simple obedience to wherever the Holy Spirit leads. And Father, for those who are counting on lesser things to get them into the kingdom, counting on religious works, counting on church membership, counting on attending once a week, counting on checking a few boxes here and there, but have never been changed by you. Father, the same thing that keeps us from walking with you in excellence is the same thing that's preventing them from crossing from death into life and it's simple obedience. Right now in this moment, either online or in this building, it's time for the running to stop. It's time for the excuses to end. It's time... It's time to just be honest about where we stand with you. And there's any other God in our life other than you. By simple obedience, surrender, turn from our old broken life that's leading us to hell, and be transformed through the blood of Jesus Christ. We ask it in Christ's name as we worship together this morning. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram, at Hyde Park Baptist.